Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Alison, thanks very much indeed. Do keep your Bibles open in front of you, if you will. We've uh, thought, uh, and rightly so, already of the barbaric attacks in, uh, in Paris on Friday evening. Pete reminded us, in case uh, we haven't heard, I'm sure we all have, that 120 people lost their lives, more than 350 were injured, and that it was indeed the worst act of violence to strike France since the end of World War II. Since then, quite rightly, news bulletins have been dominated by the events in Paris, as has social media, if you look at those sorts of things. Thousands of people have changed their profile picture to show solidarity with Parisians and posted many comments to say the same. I was especially struck by one post on my Facebook feed which read this. The enemy is not Muslims or Christians or Judaism. The real enemy is extremism. Much has been written and uh, said in the last 48 hours about young men being radicalised. I would guess most would agree that religious extremism is, if not the root, a root of the problem that we are experiencing and have been experiencing this weekend. So listen again carefully to our reading this evening. 
It was a reading that we planned to have read anyway as we worked through this section of Luke's Gospel. But listen again to Jesus' words as we think about the danger of religious extremism. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus goes on in verse 27. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now that does sound a lot like religious extremism to me. If you're going to follow me, says Jesus, you've got to hate even your nearest and dearest. If you're going to follow me, says Jesus, you've got to be ready to die for the cause. Indeed, this whole section is is making one point. Jesus says, if you don't live like this, you cannot be his disciple. That's what he says at the end of verse 26 and the end of verse 27. And again, in verse 33, do you see it there? In the same way, any of you does not give up everything he has, cannot be my disciple. This is exactly the sort of thing that sets alarm bells ringing. If you were to start writing this sort of thing in emails or post it on social media, I reckon you'll soon have those in charge of national security watching you like a hawk, monitoring your every move, and who would blame them? So this evening we have to ask some serious questions. What does this really mean? Is this a really dangerous teaching that we ought to avoid? And if not, what makes this different from radical Islam? For the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus at a dinner party with religious leaders. Now, here in verse 25, he's left the dinner party and he's on his way to Jerusalem with, as you can see there in verse 25, large crowds, crowds of people around him. He's on his way to Jerusalem, the capital, because back in chapter 9, verse 51, uh, 51, we read that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's how we know that's where he's going. So he's heading for Jerusalem and nothing is going to stop him. He is going there to die. Now, what does that sound like? Somebody going to a capital city, nothing's going to stop him, and he's going to die. It sounds suspiciously like a suicide mission to me. But here's the first major difference to note between Jesus and radical Islam. Jesus, the leader of his people, is going to die for the cause. The leader is going to die. That is very different to the wicked monsters who run the so-called Islamic State and before them Al-Qaeda. Leaders of those uh, extremist groups recruit impressionable young men and sometimes women and send them out, the recruits, to blow themselves up while the leaders themselves sit in their headquarters dishing out orders. How different Jesus is. Our leader goes out to die. But more than that, our leader is our God willing to go to his death. That is striking. But even more important, Jesus doesn't go with explosives strapped to his body designed to kill and maim and to cause havoc and distress and to breed fear no very differently Jesus goes to his death to save men and women and boys and girls he goes to his death to rescue us from death to bring life and healing to free us from fear to bring us peace And he isn't driven by hatred. He is moved by love. Love for you and for me. What a leader. What a God. And that is the context that changes everything here. 
The God who loves us, the God who is love at his very core. The God who dies for us tells us what it means to follow him. And that is crucial before we go any further in this passage to understand that. It is crucial to grasp who Jesus is and what he's doing. Jesus' death is enough, completely enough, to get us into a right relationship with God. We don't have to do anything to get ourselves right with God. We don't have to keep religious rules or live up to an impossible moral standard. We certainly don't have to earn our place in paradise by blowing ourselves up. He does it all for us on the cross because he loves us. And here's the thing if you're going to understand this passage tonight. When you've been loved like this, as we remember when we take bread and wine, when you've been loved like this, completely loved, loved to death, the only right response is to wholeheartedly and completely give your life over back to him in return. That's what Jesus is teaching those who walk along the road with him. So Jesus said, verse 26, if anyone would come to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What a statement that is. Still, despite all that I've said, what a statement. And if you want to take notes, here's the first point. This is the call to hate everything to follow Jesus. You see, even with that introduction, these words are deeply troubling and unsettling. They bothered me when I read them on Monday morning as I began to prepare for this evening. They troubled me even more when I heard the news of the events in Paris on Friday evening. Hatred of others is a horrible thing. It leads us to do terrible things. When I was growing up, my parents never allowed me to say that I hated anyone. Even if I didn't like them, I wasn't permitted to say that I hated them. Start to say that around the dinner table and I was sent away. And yet here is a call to hate your family. And it is Jesus of all people saying that we should hate our mum and dad and our siblings and our children. It makes you wonder if this is a misprint. Now look, to understand this, think yourself into a culture where family, the extended family, and the name and honour of your family... That is paramount, where a culture where your religious affiliation gives you your identity, both as an individual and as a family. Think yourself into a culture that um, brings such shame, disgrace, is brought upon you if you change your religion. Think of a Muslim girl in her 20s, she was a lawyer. I met her when I was working in a church in London. She was looking into Christianity. She came to a midweek lunchtime Christian meeting that I ran every week uh, right in the heart of the West End. It was safer for her to come to church on a weekday lunch break than to go to church on a Sunday because if she'd gone out on a Sunday, her family would ask her where she was going. But even coming to the Christian meeting I ran midweek, she would walk in in fear that someone might have seen her. She was always looking over her shoulder. She said to me, if my family find out I'm coming here, they'll kill me. Now, whether they would literally have killed her or not, I don't know. But I do know that if her family had discovered that she was considering Christianity, life would have become very uncomfortable for her, to say the least. And if she'd actually turned to Christ, her family would have disowned her. Why? For bringing disgrace on the family. They may well have killed her because they'd have considered her actions 
to convert to Christ as a declaration that she hated her family. How could you do this to us? Do you see, understand the cultural context and we see that Jesus isn't telling you and me to hate our mum and dad, our spouse, our kids and our siblings. See, in that culture, to leave the religion of your family in order to follow Christ would be interpreted by your family as hatred towards them. Jesus doesn't advocate hate or any hate crimes. Again, put it in the wider context of verse 25. Jesus is going to the cross to die for people because he loves them. And you remember, you don't need to turn up, but you remember how all this series started way back in September when we began by looking at chapter 10. There we read that the whole of God's law could be summed up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. And who is my neighbour? Even the person of another religion and race and culture. Love them. Now Jesus isn't teaching us to hate people. Jesus already taught us to love people. No, Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to put me first, even above your family, your family might just interpret your commitment to me as hating them. And that's the level of commitment you still need to make to me. For most of us, our family won't disown us when we become Christians. Some will. I know there are some here who have found that their family are so opposed to the gospel that their Christian commitment has caused family relationships to be really strained and uncomfortable. But for most of us, it won't be like that. It won't be family. It'll be something else. The principle here is put Jesus first above everything else. And that is one why one writer called Craig Blomberg writes like this. He says, who is most likely to be the rival master to Christ in your life? Your career or standard of living, your house, your car or cars, sports, recreational travel, perhaps even your family. Whatever are those things, he says, you must surrender them to Jesus today. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26. Love Jesus more than even your nearest and dearest. That's the call to hate everything to follow Jesus. And if that isn't challenging enough, second we hear the call to die to follow Jesus. Verse 27, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here's one of those expressions that we use very loosely in everyday speech today. So, you know, if we're feeling sorry for ourselves because we have a heavy cold and we're sort of whinging about it with our friends, they might try and get us to shut up and man up and get on with it. And they might say, oh, well, we all have our crosses to bear, so just get on with it. Or we might find ourselves complaining about an irritating boss at work and someone sympathising will say, that's the cross that you must bear, my friend. So they, these days, we've reduced carrying our cross to having to cope with a sore throat and a miserable pain in the neck for as a boss. But in the first century... When Jesus first said these words, if you were carrying your cross, you were on your way to die. A condemned criminal about to be executed for his crimes. So carrying your cross meant shame and rejection and certain death. And Christians all over the world are living with exactly that just because they follow Christ. Each month at our church family prayer meeting, we pray for the persecuted church somewhere in the world. And when we do, we find ourselves praying for Christians who've been uh, put in prison 
and raped and beaten up and some have been killed just because they are Christian. I was talking to someone just last Sunday and she was saying that that that, that very thing is happening in northern Nigeria but it never makes the news. Just before this service I was speaking to somebody and they were talking about that very thing happening to people in China and North Korea. Some of our own mission partners know people who are suffering serious persecution just because they're Christian. It's happening all over the world. People are ready to die for Christ. But they don't blow themselves up. They don't seek to kill and maim others. To die for Christ is to be motivated by love for him because he has loved us so much. Love for him and love for others. We can call it religious extremism if you like. I'd rather call it the only appropriate response to all that Jesus has done for me. Jesus died for me, I'll die for him. And when I hear of Christians all over the world doing just that, I've got to say I'm humbled. For us here in Britain, we're unlikely to lose our life for being Christian. I think actually in the years ahead we will find ourselves more and more persecuted, perhaps taken to court, possibly imprisoned as we stand up for Christian truth, but right now that doesn't happen. And so it is a desperate indictment on us that we are not prepared to suffer in any meaningful way for Jesus Christ when others around the world are dying for him. It is a challenge, isn't it? We're not even prepared to suffer the rejection of friends. So rather than speak out for Jesus, we keep quiet. Rather than live a distinctive life, we blend in. Largely, our lifestyle doesn't look any different from those around us. The name of Jesus doesn't flow easily off our lips because we're not prepared to suffer the inconvenience of an awkward conversation. It's a challenge. We're not really prepared to die for Jesus. We won't even lose a bit of stuff for him or a bit of reputation. It is a challenge because verse 27 is emphatic. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus said the same words in Mark chapter 8 and uh, so at the end of week 7 of our Christianity Explored course uh, we look at that parallel passage and we say to people this is how you start the Christian life. You trust Jesus' death on the cross for you for your forgiveness and to make you right with God and to live that out you have to be ready to die for him. Verse 27, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple wonderfully when we explain that at Christianity Explored some people say you know I do want to follow Jesus even if it means that because I've seen how wonderful he is but it's also true that at that point some people walk away saying that is too much to ask I'm not prepared to put Jesus above everything else I'm not ready to die for him now heartbreaking as that is as people walk away I want to say that is a very honest response and I reckon if we've honestly been engaging with this this evening I reckon that is the sort of response that is going to be going through our minds too really am I prepared to put Jesus above everything else am I prepared to suffer shame and disgrace for Jesus am I even ready to die for him and so with that kind of thought racing through our minds Jesus tells two stories the first story And this is the third point, if you are still taking point. The first story says, count the cost of following Jesus. It's a story of a building project, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? 
For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and wasn't able to finish. I love the television programme Grand Designs with the architect and TV presenter Kevin MacLeod. It's a programme, if you've not seen it, all about people who want to design and build unusual cutting-edge houses. Every now and again, it follows people who run out of money and they never complete the build. They haven't costed the project properly. They haven't anticipated the snags. They haven't built in a contingency for hidden costs and unexpected things that they might encounter in any new build. And so sometimes, just sometimes, they can't afford to complete the building. As I watch the programme, I find myself so frustrated with these people. Sometimes I feel sorry for them because they seem to be quite nice people who've just bitten off more more than they can chew. But even when I feel sorry for them, I always end up thinking what chumps they are. Why on earth did they start the building project if they didn't have the money to complete it? That's all this parable is saying, and that's verse 29. If you lay the foundation of a building project and aren't able to complete it, you'll be ridiculed, especially if you've gone on national television to do it. Well, Jesus didn't say that. So Jesus' point is, count the cost. He says, before you start following me, work out what it will cost you to live this way. And so at that point, a whole load of us might be saying, oh, I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm not going back there next Sunday if that's the cost. But before anyone has the chance to walk away from him, Jesus tells another story which says, and this is the fourth point, you can't afford not to follow Jesus. Jesus tells a story of a king going to war. Verse 31. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. Again, Jesus says, just think about it for a moment. Great military strategists work out whether they can win a battle before they go to war. If the opposition is too great, they will wave the white flag and surrender. Now look, God is the almighty, all-powerful king of the universe. He is the most powerful king of the two kings in this story. God is the king who will win any battle. And we are to see ourselves as the other king. You like that? Don't. Because we tend to think of ourselves as kings as we strut around this world. We think we're commander of our own destiny. At times we feel invincible. But this story says you are not the ultimate king. And we are foolish to fight against God. It's not a battle we'll win. Well, that's what we do as we strut around this world thinking we are king of everything. And by doing that, by trying to make a reputation for ourselves, we actually set ourselves up as enemies against Almighty God. And in this story, Jesus says, wake up, be sensible, don't pick a fight with God. You, if, you can't, if you can't win, don't pick a fight and you won't beat him. Surrender to him. Do you see what he's saying? You cannot afford not to surrender to him. Make your peace with God. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus is on his way to do. Jesus is on his way to die on a cross so that we can be at peace with God. So yes, count the cost of following Jesus, but when you're tempted to say, this is cost is too great for me, Jesus quickly says, no, no, look at it a different way. You can't afford not to follow me. Don't fight against God. You won't win. Surrender to him. And by the way, I've done everything to make peace with God for you. You see, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see that surrendering all to God 
is not a risky thing at all. Our God is a gracious and kind God. Our God is on our side. He is for us. He wants the best for us. He loves us so much that he died for us. And so, do you see, melted by love, being, if you want to put it this way, being an extremist for Jesus Christ is not dangerous at all. It is actually the only reasonable response to all that he has already done for us. And motivated by love, a life that is so taken up with him, so given over to him and to others, is exactly the response the world needs to see, and not least of all at a time like this, when Parisians have been so brutally murdered by wicked religious radicals. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we see that to follow the Lord Jesus with everything, if we call it extremism, is not dangerous at all, but rather sensible and the only reasonable response to all that Jesus has done for us. We know it looks dangerous because we don't want to give up everything that we have and are to you. But we also know that as we do it, we find life, we enjoy life, and ultimately we will have eternal life. And so we ask you to do that kind of work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to Help us to see this is the only sensible response. And there may be as a people here at Christchurch Forward that we start to live this kind of life, a life completely sold out for the Lord Jesus, a life which loves you and loves others so that the world might see how wonderful that looks and rather than be afraid of that kind of extremism would be drawn to it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.